minimalists. <laughs> Howdy. Well, you know what? I don't like waiting, so I think we can go ahead and get started. Ooh, okay, this one's called Drunk Shopping. This is also from the Values chapter. A recent survey found that drunk shopping is an estimated $45 billion per year industry. Apparently, 79% of tipsy consumers have made at least one drunk purchase, and the average drunk shopper spends $444 each year making inebriated buying decisions. I would argue, however, that nearly 100% of us do this. We may not be drunk on alcohol when we shop. But we're frequently under the influence of instant gratification, so much so that we make purchasing decisions we know are antithetical to our values just to feel the dopamine rush of the moment. We ignore our budgets. We buy things we don't even want. We make purchases to impress others. We set aside our values for short-term gain. I know, because I've done all these things. When our taste for possessions or pleasure is stronger than our values, we sacrifice fulfillment for transient gains. That's certainly what happened to me the day I was arrested for shoplifting. Truth be told, I could have borrowed a necktie from a friend or arrived at my interview without one at all, and I would have been okay. But... The story I told myself was that I needed this right now, that I needed it so much that it didn't matter if I sacrificed my values to get it. I hadn't had a single drink, but in a way, I was shopping under the influence. My decisions were impaired by a misguided attitude. I must have this, and I must have it now. And because I didn't know what my values were, it was an easy compromise to make. Of course, this happens to everyone at some point. We search for shortcuts or act on impulse, and the world around us boosts the signal of temptation. It's not only drunk shoppers who are impaired. Our children are also intoxicated by instant gratification. Think about the last time you left a museum. You were probably forced to exit through the gift shop. I'm going to pause on that one for a moment. I just took my daughter to a museum recently. It was, uh, you all have probably seen some advertisements for this somewhere, the Van Gogh exhibit. It's this immersive Van Gogh experience. I'm sure if you Google Van Gogh experience or something like that, you could find it. It may be coming to your city. It was truly stunning. It was gorgeous. I found immense value in it, as did my wife and, and our daughter, and uh, afterward, when we were exiting, of course, they have us exit through the gift shop. And um, because my daughter's my daughter, and she's aware of uh, sort of pernicious nature of advertisements. Although, uh, to be fair, I think a lot of kids are aware that advertise cartoons, even when I used to watch Saturday morning cartoons back in the 80s, I recognized how intrusive they were. But a gift shop, being forced to exit, not, not a choice, not, hey, there's two ways to go here. You can go through the gift shop if you want, but exit through the gift shop. I mean, one of the best documentaries of all time is actually called Exit Through the Gift Shop. It's uh, the Banksy documentary. And 
um, anyway, we, we, it was startling because we just had experienced this beautiful work of art that had, was enhanced by this immersive experience. I mean, Van Gogh's art is stunning, but in a way it was even more stunning because of the music that was applied to it and this immersive, uh, th- th- it was like almost like, th- I mean, it was a 3D experience, even if the art was 2D, the the experience itself was in this room and, and even the floor was artwork and these holog- or the uh, um, projection images rather. And it was just so profound, beautiful, uh, stunning. Uh, it, I'm actually at a loss of words. But then, you know, where I'm, when I'm not at a loss for words is when I started leaving with the family and the bright lights of the gift shop and the commodification of of art. I didn't even mind spending the absurd amount of money for the tickets because it was such a great experience. But then how do you think Van Gogh would feel hundreds of years later that people were being forced to you know, buy tchotchkes? If there's anything you want to talk about, you just want to make some comments. Love to talk to you here in a moment. Feel free to raise your hand. I already see some hands that are being raised, but not many. So you'll be one of the first in, in line. We'll, we'll have a discussion here. Anyway, let's return to the text. Think about the last time you left a museum. You were probably forced to exit through the gift shop. It's consumerism's last gasp. And sadly, it works. Every time my daughter bounds through the knickknacks, tchotchkes, and souvenirs, she begs to bring one home. Can I get something, please? What do you want? I don't know anything. That's what consumerism does to everyone. We don't know what we want, but we know we want more. And we want it now. We don't even stop to think about it, to question what might add value to our lives or what might get in the way. But if we don't question everything we bring into our lives, we will allow anything in. The message of minimalism, then, is simple. If you didn't need it five minutes ago, you probably don't need it now. And even if you do, it wouldn't hurt to wait. If I tell my daughter to ask me tomorrow whether she can buy that useless widget, she almost always forgets. That's because we remember only that which is meaningful, and all the ephemera dissipates into the ether. Dr. Brown, let me bring you onto the uh, stage here. Can you hear me? I sure can. Hey, greetings from Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, Um, I can't wait to get back there. I, I'm super excited about it. I did see it online. Um, so here was my question. I did the the challenge that you all have, um, you know, one item a day, and I absolutely exceeded. I mean, I didn't realize I had that much stuff until mm-hmm. I had um, took everything, filled the garage up. Then I called different companies, um, Amvest, Goodwill, and, you know, trucks and trucks and trucks. But the last part for me is that now I'm just down to the family photos um and so that's Mm. really hard but what i did was i did the same thing i took them all and put them in the garage and i'm looking at this like there's no way i need six containers of photo albums nor do (laughs) i have enough hours in a day to scan all of the photos in so whenever i'm doing it i listen to the podcast and try to but i feel like i'm at i would love just like your thoughts on how other people get over that hump because what do you do with the personal family photos? I mean, the ones of your children. 
and yes. those type of things. <laughs> you, you know what's funny about this, Doc, is is the if if it was just the photos that you found to be meaningful you wouldn't have a problem with scanning those. It's the fact that, and, I, and by, by the way, I, I went through the same thing. If, by having six boxes, it's like, oh my God, how do I even sort through all of this, right? Because there might be one box worth of photos out of the six, and then the other ones are duplicates, or they're, yes. yeah, I, I don't even know who these people are in this photo anymore, and, or the, the photos that were passed down to you from uh, some other, yeah, um, I, I call this hidden clutter, by the way. And so, like, we don't realize like, when we get down to, to this level, and it's quite the burden. And so, I, I always ask myself a couple questions here. The first one that I ask myself is, what, what do I hope to gain from this? Or what is my outcome? Because ultimately, those photos are going unused right now, and that's causing you some stress. We know that. But also... Don't you hope that you actually can get some value from them? Because right now, if they sit in an attic or a basement or, or wherever else, then then they don't really serve a purpose for for anyone. We we have a podcast episode coming out tomorrow. Actually, it's great timing. It's called Computer Clutter, and we talk about dealing with some photos on there as well. Um, we've talked about this on the podcast in the past. There are some places where you can send photos, so. Uh, there are really there are really three options. The first one I don't like at all. Do nothing. Okay, that's the first option, and that'd be fine if these weren't stressing you out or burdening you. However, even then, it could be a problem because what if hap- what if something happens to them? What if there's a fire or a flood or you know, uh, anything? A tornado can hit you know Nashville, and then all of a sudden, now you've lost all these photos. You don't have a digital backup of them, so. So they're not really protected in the way you want to protect them. And so I don't like that first option. The, the next two options I think are really helpful. One is if you want to dedicate a weekend, you can do something called a scanning party. And uh, you can read about this over at theminimalists.com slash scanning. The reason we call it a party is it sounds a lot more fun than if you just uh, have a bunch of people over to scan some stuff. But you get the boxes out and you get some people you care about, you love, and you want to relive some of these memories together. These photos don't have memories in them, but they can trigger the memories that are inside you. And so by bringing some people over to, to your house, you can sort through them together. And what you'll do is you make two piles. Here, here's the pile of the photos I want to scan. Here are the piles of the duplicates and the photos that I have no intention. I'm not going to get any value from whatsoever. These are the photos I'm just simply decluttering, right? And then you'll, you'll find like, oh, wow, I'm keeping 10%, 20% of the photos. And then once you scan them, you, know, you, can, you, can, sit, you can sort them through a, a digital scanner. There's some options out there online. I've got, you can see the one I use on, on that blog post I just talked to you about, theminimalists.com slash scanning. And um, you can scan all of them together. And as you relive those, those sort of memories, you get a meal together. And so you spend a good chunk of a day doing that with some friends or family. And I find that's a really meaningful experience. And by the end of it, oh, now we've scanned some stuff and now, now they're backed up online. So I back mine up in two places in the cloud. So I use Dropbox. You can use, I, I, I don't care what you use. You can use any sort of photo service. Um, Google Photos is one. iDrive is another one that is really helpful. Those are the three big ones. 
for storing photos. There are other ones out there as well, but those are three big ones. But then I also have a, a hard drive at my home as well where I store these photos. So if anything accidentally gets deleted on the cloud, no worries, I've got them on a hard drive. Or if my hard drive, something happens to it, no worries there, they're backed up on the cloud. So I won't ever lose those memory triggers. Now, if you don't want to go through the scanning party, you can send them off somewhere. You're still gonna have to sort through them and pick which ones you want to, or you could send all of them if you want, it just get pretty costly. There, there are services out there like $1 scan and a few other places that can help you out with, uh, with handling it for you. And so I think that's, uh, either one of those are great options. It just depends on how much work you're willing to put in. Thank you. That helps a lot. And I want to say the podcast where um, you talked about your mother having the boxes one, two, three, and four, that was me because mm. I have four children. Mm-hmm. And that actually helped me because I brought them to the garage where I organized everything. And I asked them, you know, is this something if I wasn't here that you would keep that that brings you joy? And they, they told me no. And so I sent all of those pictures of their, you know, when they first drew their name and I got rid of them because I thought it would bring them joy and it, and it didn't. <laughs> mm. So thank you. That helped me a lot by asking them the, the question. And I mean, I had been saving all these things and it was just things that they would have gotten rid of. So thank Amen. you. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And one other resource for you is we have a, a podcast episode um, where we, we've addressed few, a few of these things. I think it's episode um, uh, 272. Let me look that up real quick. Yeah, actually, it's called Hidden Clutter. We just talked about the, the term hidden clutter. If you check out episode 272, we talk about some more scanning as well. I think that'll, that'll help you out. It'll provide some additional resources that I think will help you. But I hope to see you in Nashville uh, just to, ooh, October. That's real soon. We'll see you yep. then. You'll definitely see me. Thank you. Have a good night. You as well. All right. Alexander, let's bring you up to the stage here. Hi, Joshua. Howdy. Um, I had a question about digital decluttering. So um, it's, a, it's a two-part question. The first part is email-specific. Like, do mm. you have kind of rules that you use for yourself, uh, mm-hmm. kind of guidelines of how you get rid of, um, you know, so many emails? Well, what problem are you having with the emails? Are, are, is it that you're having too many people email you, or you just have too many emails in your inbox I th- now? I think What's the I'm... Problem? The problem is like feeling like I might need the information at some point. Uh, yeah, and just not in case. deleting it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, the nice thing about you know, I use Gmail personally. It's not an endorsement. I'm not mm-hmm. uh, recommending any any brand or service. Whatever works for you works for you. It's fine. Um, but the archive feature there is nice because I'm effectively deleting it but it is archived in a way where I can always search for it. Now I know there's emails from my mom in there that do I get a little bit of solace and peace of mind that, Oh yeah, if I ever wanted to go back, my mom's been dead for what, 12 years now. Um, if I ever wanted to go back and, and look at some of those emails, I, I could, and I haven't done that in, in many years, but I sort of have the peace of mind. Although I will say this, if it all got wiped out tomorrow, I've let go of the attachment to it. And that's really what we're talking about here is you can, you can hold on to those emails, but let go of the attachment. So if anything were to happen, now how do you do that? You know, there is no how to let go. Letting go is not something you do. Letting go is something you stop doing, right? Letting you stop clinging to every email. You stop clinging to everything, pretending as though it's precious. Stop clinging to toxic relationships. It, all these, we, what we do is we, we cling to things. And if we cling to them, then 
it's impossible for us to let go. But as soon as we recognize them as an illusion, then, well, that, that clinging tends to, to stop on its own and, and we're able to drop it and, and move on. Now, the, the moving on is not something that is prescriptive either. It is, it is simply understanding that, hey, those things can serve me. They're archived out there. And I also understand the compulsion to delete it all, right? In fact, there are new email services now like Hey. A friend of mine started it. It's called hey, Hey.com. Um, uh, and, and what it does is it has a preset that it automatically deletes your email after one year. And it embraces the sort of temporary nature. It encourages some ephemerality. And so that's one rule you can set up for yourself. Uh, with my stuff, I have a ju- the just-in-case rule, right? The, the book, Love People Use Things, has those 16 rules for living with less in it. And one of them is the just-in-case rule. And it means anything I'm holding on to just in case, I can get rid of because I can replace it for less than $20 in less than 20 minutes. Now, it's a little bit different in the digital world, but the the fundamental principle of the rule is the same. And that, that principle is that, well, I actually don't need any of my just-in-case items. And any of the things I thought I was holding on to just-in-case, I've never ended up really needing to replace them. Uh, there's five over the last 10 years. And, and, but that's given me permission to let go of tens of thousands of just-in-case items that were sort of weighing me down. But I, Alexander, I believe there's a second part to your question as well. Yeah, that was really helpful. Um, the second part was when you start using, for example, new apps and things that you know um, these days seem to come up very frequently. Um, you know, it's, they come with emails as well, some extra emailing, and uh, yes, yes, also yes, just yes. the apps themselves. Like all of a sudden, you're using just another one. So with the whole concept of minimalism, it seems that it's kind of adding more clutter, right? Yeah, let's talk about what minimalism is for a second. Minimalism is is about the intentionally questioning the things that we bring into our lives, the things that we hold on to, and the things we let go of. There's three sort of different categories there, right? And what that doesn't presuppose is that it doesn't presuppose there's a place where we're going to get where we are in minimalism. It's not a destination, right? It is merely a tool to help us question what is serving a purpose, what's adding value to our lives, and getting rid of that which is sort of superfluous, right? And so with respect to apps, yeah, I mean, there are ways that we can do certain things with the apps on our phone to declutter them. In fact, uh, the podcast that's coming out tomorrow about computer clutter, we talk, we talk about some of these apps. And, and we also talk about some of the uh, ways that we manage some of the, the apps. You can do something like the minimalism game for the apps on your phone. I mean, I've met a lot of people who have hundreds of apps on their phone. It, it, it becomes quite comical. It's almost like a parody in, in a way. And so, the minimalism game is like a way that, okay, day one, first day of the month, I want to get rid of one app. Second day of the month, two apps. Third day of the month, three apps, so forth and so on. And you go as long as you can until you've eliminated all of the excess apps. Uh, the, the, the rule that I put in place is, uh, I have three rules. Uh, one is the, um, well, the adjust for win rule, then there's the seasonality rule, and then there's the emergency item rule. So uh, this applies to my stuff, but it also applies to the apps on my phone. So I start with the seasonality rule. Have I used this app in the last 90 days? So this is also called the 90-90 rule. If not, am I going to use it in the next 90 days? 
And if the answer is no to both of those, I give myself permission to delete it. The cool thing about an app is you can always just re-download it if you absolutely need it. Yes, it's a little bit extra friction, but who cares? A little extra friction will give you the traction you need to let go. On top of that, I, I have a few apps I do that don't fall in that seasonality rule. Like I, I go on flights occasionally, but because of the pandemic, I've been flying less. And so there are, are apps like the Delta app that I, or the whatever, Alaska, whatever airlines that I, I maybe haven't used in the next 90 days. And I'm not sure if I'm going to use it in the next uh, 90 days. And so the just for wins, I know I'm going to use them again. I'm certain of it. It's kind of like when you buy toilet paper, you don't buy it one square at a time. You buy enough so that you have it just for when you're going to use it, even if you don't use that particular roll within the next 90 days, per se. Right. And so that seasonality rule covers most of them. The just for when rule covers the rest. And then there's the emergency item rule, which I, I cannot see where this would apply on the phone, but it could if you have an app you, just in case of an emergency. So we do have some just in case items that make sense to keep. And we call them emergency items. So if you have jumper cables in your car, emergency items are simply just in case items that you hope you'll never, ever have to use, but they're there for a true emergency. The only thing to think about there is most emergencies aren't. And Alexander, the last thing I'll say to you is I would definitely check out the podcast that comes out tomorrow. I think it'll, I think it'll help you out. Thanks for your question, brother. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. For sure. Yaman, you still there? Oh, I, oops, sorry. Tressa. We'll get to you, and then we'll get to Yaman. I promise. I accidentally hit the wrong button. Hello. Howdy. Here we are. Hi. Hi, Joshua. Um, I wanted to say a couple things. Um, I wanted to thank you for your continued passion for the work that you're doing. Um, I can't imagine how that is that you hear the same questions over and over again, and yet you're genuinely caring towards people. And I do appreciate that. Um, also, I'm from Beaver Creek, Ohio. Uh, <laughs> and I wanted in the to house. Say, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for the legacy that you're living. You're leaving in Dayton. It's amazing. Um, um, I'm and thank really you for your honesty in the story that you shared with us today. And then um, just also how you, um, your podcast helped me to rethink things that I thought were my values and continually to look at things. And I just, that has been a life changing. Uh, I just, I can't say thank you enough. I did want to share one thing and that is that um, I'm learning gratitude as I get older. And I think the thing that helps me the most, cause I've, I've used minimalism to get rid of things, but yet then it just keeps creeping back in. I'm like, Oh, I need that. I need that. And I'm finally learning to practice instead of feeling like I need to go to the store and get this to like sit maybe for a few minutes and say what I'm thankful for. Yeah. And genuinely that's enough for me to be like, Oh, I don't really have to run to target tonight. I could go next week. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. The, the gratitude thing is fascinating because and I know it's often called a gratitude practice and I understand what you mean by the essence of it. I, I think so, <laughs> some, sometimes what we can accidentally get caught up in is we can beat ourselves up because we're not being grateful enough. It's, it becomes this uh, um, sort of self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. And so what I've realized, I, and I've realized this especially just over the last year, is gratitude is not, also not something that we do. It arises within us. And it's, it's, it's like being in the moment. Like you can't do being in the moment. You can't do being. It's, they're sort of antithetical to one another, right? 
And so yeah. the, the, the gratitude, it's almost as though we're making room for the gratitude in a way because we're so busy all the time. What you're, what you're really saying is, hey, if I just stop for a minute and stop being busy, again, not doing something. You can't do yes. less busy, by the way. Doing less is not about the doing. It's about the less. And, and, and just pausing for a moment, then the gratitude arises on its own. I can't force the gratitude. That's not even real gratitude anyway. I can't pretend to be grateful. I mean, I, I can pretend, but that's not real gratitude. That's a sort of faux sort of a thing. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for your observation there. And folks listening to this, the, the thing that I'll point out is if, uh, if you feel as though gratitude is something that is missing from your life, it might, it might simply be because there's too much doing going on and not enough being. But I really appreciate your, uh, Absolutely. your comment. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Yaman, let's see if we can try this again. What's hey, up, brother? How are you doing? I am well. How are you? Outstanding. Thank you. Thank you for bringing me up. I uh, Actually, I raised my hand initially when you first mentioned the Van Gogh thing because I just took my mom to it last oh, nice. week. And I actually had a very similar thought to you when you, know, you walk through the gift shop at the end and... I was just looking at the shirts and the way that they were priced, and I was like, well, I just read in one of the, you know, that they had the narrative that was going on as you walked through it, and and it said that he died because of his status, and he died as a poor man, and I, I, it, I couldn't help but think, like, oh my god, here we are commodifying his things and his work that way, so, and, and you know, I had a very similar um trying to thought i guess so that's what i wanted to start off with but in terms of questions if you're taking any i um sure i don't have it fully fleshed out so excuse me as i tremble my way through it but um i often find myself wanting to share my personal experiences when people face me with their problems and especially when they're like when their problems are stemming from a place of like complaining about what's going on without mm. proposing any solutions for how their lives could be better. And I feel in many ways, ever since I've become more intentional with be it through my relationship with things or people or just, you know, there's been an ongoing active shift of um, values, if you will. Sure. Um, it, it, it feels like the path that I'm on is the way, but I don't want to, I'm no holier than thou. I'm actively trying not to appear that way. So, but then again, you know, <laughs> I have to actually gauge how I feel because I remember when I had those problems. I remember when I was complaining about those very same things. Life has never been better for me since I've become more intentional. So, in a way, I use my feeling about where I'm at in life now as my gauge of this being the correct path or the way and i would like for the people that i love in my life to at least give it a shot but yeah. i'm wondering if you have any like if you've experienced something similar with your circles or if you have any pointers to kind of not oh, necessarily yeah. get out of the way but just i don't know if you have any commentary if you want to turn this into a discussion yeah let's do it i yeah you know what's fascinating is is i i also am plagued by self-righteousness i mean let, let's call it what it is um and and so and that's not a good or bad thing. It's a societal thing, right? And and we 
we're smitten with being correct, right? And, and therefore, yeah, so I wrote this, uh, this essay about self-righteousness. I'm sure you've, you've seen it. It's called Off-the-Rack off Self-Righteousness. Yes. And you know what's really fascinating is we're going to do a podcast episode tomorrow recording it uh, about the advice epidemic. And so I also have an essay called The Advice Epidemic. And so I think this is a, a fascinating conversation to, to have on the eve of that. So awesome. let me pull up that, that essay because uh, I know you've seen it, but for folks who aren't familiar with it, but basically it is, this is the summary and then you and I can maybe have an extemporaneous conversation about it. This is uh, called The Advice Epidemic. Uh, the urge to convince others is overwhelming. On the surface, it appears virtuous to help, to instruct, to coach, to guide, to motivate. Giving advice gives the impression of nobility, as if we have an obligation to ameliorate the plight of the world, to assist people headed the, quote, wrong way, to point them in the right direction. So that, that sounds to me like it's where you are right now. And believe me, that's, that's where I was until very, very recently. Um, so this is not from a place of judgment. It's, it's merely from a, an observational uh, identification, if, if nothing else. Um, the next line in the essay is, we are all middlemen in the middle of a self-help epidemic. And um, I, the, the real problem is believing that there is a right and wrong. Okay, maybe there are in some instances some, some narrow things when it comes to harming other people, etc. But that's not what we're talking about here. Um, we're not talking about violence. We're not talking about um, uh, uh, morality, anything like that. Like We could take all that off the table. The problem is we've moralized everything. That my way is the right way. You even use terms like the, the path, right? And yeah. yes, maybe there is a path, and maybe and maybe you forged your own path, and then and then what we want to do is what drag other people down the path that we have forged, and mm. um, and and the as soon as you step back and see how ugly that is, and, and sometimes the yeah, I use these terms, these metaphors, these analogies, these parables as a way to illustrate how ugly it is because you imagine like say it's your sister that you want to convince of something and now you imagine in your brain where you you, you're dragging her down this path towards you is that really helpful now even if it 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 puts uh if even if she ends up where uh uh, you want her to end up what's the old saying i I forget who said a pt barnum or someone uh, uh, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still yeah yeah, and so um, yeah, there's this whole sh- this should thing. So in the essay, I talk about all the the shoulds. You know, we we we've we're shooting all over ourselves with the you should wake up early, you shouldn't eat that, you should embrace change, you shouldn't get anxious, you should change your habits, you you, you shouldn't do this, you should do that, whatever it is, right? And and as soon as we realize there are no shoulds. These are societal constructs. They're concoctions that other people have made up. Thomas Sowell, I think, said something about politics. That politics is taking your beliefs and ascribing them to everyone else. And, and that's kind of what we've done. And by the way, social media has merely amplified the righteousness here, right? In order for me to be right, that means someone else has to be wrong. 
But right and wrong are perspectival. They are individual. They're situational, right? And and so the essay goes on to say, this is later in the essay, but each time we advise someone, it may feel like it's arising from a place of love. And that's where you are right now. You feel like, oh, this is the loving thing to do. But it's actually the ego saying, I know what's best for you. Yeah. See, I, I, I feel like I have those two voices going on at the same time in my head because I, mm. I constantly have the voice that tells me it's like, well, dude, you don't have to like, I mean, number one, they didn't necessarily ask for advice. Maybe they just needed you to lend an ear and I should just listen. And I found myself very recently more times than not lending an ear, smiling and just acknowledging that I heard you. And yes. just just so I don't feel like, well, let me moralize this. And let me tell you why I'm b- doing better. You know what I mean? Like I, I actively trying to steer away from that conversation, but I can't help but feel that conflict internally because I feel like, uh, like this will alleviate your problem. You know, like I just it, in my head, it's like this is the truth now because mm-hmm. I I have been in your very shoes with the same problems with the same set of complaints and. I don't know that that's where I'm struggling. But to your point too, I feel like, um, uh, uh, do you like, do you enjoy Bill Burr at all? His comedy? Yeah, his comedy. Yeah, I think it's fun. Yeah. So, so he, in, in one of his, um, in one of his episodes, like on the podcast a while back, he, he said something about social media that resonated really well with me. He said, it's, he's like, I feel like going on and, you know, keep in mind his age and how he gets on social media and how he goes about it, <laughs> right. which is very minimal. But um, he uh, he said, I feel like uh, Instagram and social media in general is pretty much graduate schools, uh, graduate school for morons. <laughs> it's just a bunch <laughs> of morons teaching morons, and it's like the simplest advice is is like oh, preach clap emoji. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I think it's worse than that, though. I, I yeah. it, it, And here's what I mean. But but let's say you even get great advice. So what? It's still advice, and it's still it's still part of the problem. All advice is flawed advice. And the reason being is it become by it puts me on a pedestal. I I know what's best for you, and and so that's really what the the essay goes on to say. Like, mm. hey, I am right, you are wrong, and if you subordinate yourself to me, I will fix you. How is that possibly loving? It's the opposite of loving, right? And, and the essay, um, this is one of my favorite lines from it. There is no bigger ego than that of the helper. The helpful man simply cannot help himself. He feels obligated to tear an eagle from the sky to save it from falling, to drag a dolphin to shore to rescue it from drowning. And you know, the irony is, is not lost on anyone with, with respect to that is, yes, we, we feel like, oh, I don't want this dolphin to drown, so I'm going to drag it to the shore. And, of course... We're, we're hurting the very thing we intend to help. So in that case, is is it best to just live out your life and kind of exemplify those values and let it kind of <laughs> like is that is that what you ascribe to? This is another re- this is another reason that the, the advice is so is so uh, endemic in our culture, right? Because you, 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 the the question you're asking me here, you don't intend to. It's just we're programmed to do this. Is what is your advice to not give advice? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, like you know, Ryan and I will sometimes say, like, "Hey, we're not in the advice business anymore. We're in the observation business." But I think the truth is, we are in the healing business, and and. I, I, 
understand why you feel compelled to give advice because really these are people you care about and you want to see healing in them in some way. But to use to continue that metaphor, let's say that you have someone you love and they cut their they slice their hand open. How are you possibly going to help them heal? It heals on on their own on, on its own, right? It takes time. It takes an understanding. The understanding is to not get any dirt in the wound. But you can't do healing. Healing doesn't work that way. Healing is, is often it re- requires what we what do we hear? We hear you know bed rest and and don't do anything with that. And and it's sort of the opposite of what's going on with the, all of the self help. Improve yourself and and seven steps and. And, and yet no one is, is healed. They are, um, and we use these metaphors like fix, right? Like we're all machines, but we're not machines, right? You, you can't fix anyone. As soon, as soon as something is fixed, by the way, it, it, there is no fixing. It always, it always changes. And so I have nothing but apologies to the people that I have tried to um, you know, Yeah, fix. I read that in your essay, I remember. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. You know, there, there's this thing, I, yeah, all of my intentions were great, I'm sure. Um, or, or maybe, most of them were great, or a lot of them were just like, look how, look how good I am, look how special I am, look how, mm-hmm. um, look how, uh, how much I know, or, or whatever, right? And that's not to say the ego is bad, just like fire is not good or bad. It can warm, warm you or it can burn you. And that, way, that's, yeah. that's sort of the, the point of of the essay there is like, oh, okay. Um, the ego serves us until it doesn't. The fire serves us until it doesn't. The, the, the very last uh, two little stanzas in the essay uh, goes like this. To convince, to influence, to improve oneself. These are all ribs lining the same umbrella. The truth does not require persuasion, coaxing, or coercion. It is the truth, whether you are convinced or not, as is love. And I think that's the thing. I think we get really, that's, really that confused. Last two, those last two sentences pretty much summarize the, um, the advice. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, no. It's, it, I, I, believe me, everything that we do is, is steeped in irony. And so yeah. I, I get it. You know. But um, I, I think the, the thing that... Before, I would want to convince you like that there is a right and wrong. And, but, but knowing, as soon as you actually know and the, the illusion starts to, to dissolve right in front of you, there that there is no right or wrong, yeah. now it's like, oh, okay. Because, yes, we can, we can talk about mechanical things. You know, how do you build a bike? Okay, like, yes, there's a YouTube video for that, and it could be really, really helpful. But... Yeah. But beyond the, the simple mechanical things, any how-to, any prescription, any advice, it, it fails us really quickly. In fact, it gets in the way of the very thing that we, we hope to accomplish. Very beautifully said. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your time. And um, I am actually looking forward to see you guys in Atlanta, believe it or not. I was planning to come to... I was thinking you'd be in Columbus. It would be either Columbus, Toronto, or Chicago, but then I looked at the dates, and I'm like, it's going to be snowy, it's going to be ugly, nobody knows <laughs> at the time, I don't want to make that drive, so I'm going to, I actually extended my flight strictly for your podcast, because I was leaving Atlanta the 12th, the 11th, because oh, wow. I had wedding on the 10th, and then I looked at it, and I was like, you know what, I think I can make that City Winery show, 
if I oh, extend that's a great. more. So, yeah, do you guys, uh, just, I don't know if this is out of line to ask, but do you do, like, meet and greets? Is that included? Generally, yes. With the whole COVID thing, it's it's pretty much up in the air right now. I, I doubt oh. m- most of the venues are allowing it. But uh, message me privately. We'll figure something out with you, Yuma. We'd love to just, you know, just meet yeah. you guys. Let's We'd get a hug, to- brother. Absolutely. Thank All you right. very much for your time. Appreciate Always you. Always a pleasure. All right. Hugo, let's finish up with Hugo here. We got a few more minutes left. Good evening, guys, from Good the evening. French part of Canada. Oh wow! I hope, hope <laughs> to see you in Toronto next, early next yeah. year. Maybe, maybe make the drive. Yeah, m- maybe next year. Oh, now, right. I just want to say first thanks for the inspiration, and I'd like to share with you guys the some point of view of because. My wife's from uh, Dominican Republic, and I spent mostly five years over there, and I was really happy only with my carry-on. And now, since six months, I'm really active on things on minimalism, and almost every time, my point of view, it's how will be my life with my small smooth suitcase. Yes. So... And Bravo. everything, no, you, and just to put the thing in perspective, you look at that and say, okay, not mm. that much things are essential. And yesterday I was watching a movie on my small computer to remember how it was when I was there without the TV and everything. And my wife said, what are you doing that? Because I try to remember how I feel over there. So it's really, really inspiring. And that's it. Thanks oh. a lot again. Hugo, thank you so much, brother. I really appreciate that. I'll just end by saying this. It's amazing when we temporarily deprive ourselves, even of the things that we need or the things we think we need, usually, we, we start to understand what is truly essential. It's really fascinating to me because we've spent the last year and a half using that word essential in a bunch of different ways. Essential workers, essential travel, essential businesses. But people are also spending a lot more time at home, asking, what is essential in my life? And that often starts with the stuff, but then you start questioning the other essentials, the essential relationships. What are my essential values versus my imaginary values, right? What is essential in my life? And sometimes that means we remove something from our lives. And one of the ways to do that, if you don't want to get crazy and do Ryan's packing party that you saw in our last Netflix film, if you don't want to do that, maybe it's just travel for a little while when you have the opportunity to travel again and just travel with one bag. It's funny. We went on tour in 2014 and I just had one bag that entire year lived out of a bag for 10 months. Basically Uh, it's the same bag you see in our documentary and, and it's just a over the shoulder bag. It's nothing spectacular. And man, even then I started, I was like, Oh, do I have too much stuff in this bag even? And then, that tour helped me realize there were some things I missed. Like I got home and I, I, don't, I still, as one of the minimalists, owned a bunch of things. I'm like, what the heck is this doing here? Why do I still have this? I don't intend to use this. So that's when we started setting up some of those other rules, like the seasonality rule and a few other things. Because you come home to a house you haven't been at uh, for 10 months. And wow, not only did I live without these things, but I thrived without these things. Oh, Maybe I thrived because these things weren't getting in the way. That's all for today, y'all. Appreciate you. 
Love you. Hope to see you on the road real soon. Love people. Use things. Don Minimalists. <laughs>